Hello, everybody. Today is Tuesday, uh, June 27th, 2023. This is the Tell Me About Your Tech Job podcast in the Summer iTech 350 course. Um, I've got today uh, somebody who I've known for a little while, works here at SIU, and has been gracious enough to speak to classes quite a few times. Um, one, I, I always talk about... Um, the relationship kind of our, pro, our, our our academic department has with campus IT and how great it is that we get students to work in real uh, real jobs um, while they're doing their studies and um, the the assistance we get from campus students by by coming and doing stuff like this speaking to classes and it's one of the great things about working in an academic environment there's just this foster um, this this kind of fostering of of learning between the, the operational and the academic side, at least in the technology realm, which is pretty awesome. So, um, and, and and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that today, because this guy here, Richard Smith, is doing some neat things uh, within his um, department that he oversees. He's in charge of here, the, the information security. And um, what, well, let's just say welcome, Richard. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, we are. I look forward to having you speak a little bit about some of the student initiatives you've uh, you've, you've kind of began and work on. But first of all, um, just um, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of like what you, what do you like to do for fun before we get started with the tech stuff. All right. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, good to be here. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I like talking to different classes and um, just imparting knowledge and just like working with people. It's always been a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty much a techie I do a lot of random one-off stuff even for fun like I will I will sometimes work for fun on the background whether or not be for SIU or just learning new things uh, but heavenly ball with church uh, baseball I plan a on a vintage baseball team over in Murfreesboro actually so like 18, really yeah like 1860s like baseball like no gloves no mitts um, it's a different size ball and stuff like that all the rules are different um, it, it's kind of fun um, uh, Jerry and IT actually got me involved with it back when I started working for him and I've always liked baseball I grew up playing and stuff so getting into that um, was kind of a lot of fun so I'll be there and we do a lot of stuff in St. Louis so St. Louis and end of July has a a big competition where different you know a lot of com um, teams for different states even and stuff they all kind of converge in St. Louis and have like a big uh, vintage baseball thing but uh, yeah I like the outdoors I like rocks and space and I I'm a nerd and I research random things. So look at new technology advances and batteries to space sciences to whatever other kind of stuff. And finally, I mean, my family's big, so I'm involved with a lot of my stuff with all my kids, um, especially in the summer. There's a lot of things going on and stuff like that. So I'm sure like yourself, you always stay pretty busy and stuff like that. So even though I'm working full time, I feel like my summers are busier than my falls usually. <laughs> I understand that completely. I just uh, we we finished my son's last uh, baseball game of the summer tournament they lost last night, and then I coach my daughter's softball uh, team, 11, 12, 12 U. Uh, so I I'm 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 directly involved with the uh, the softball and the baseball stuff all the time. It seems, um, but I'd never Where's heard of this of? team. What's that? Where's the softball? Which what town? It's Carbondale Rec. Carbonate? Okay. Yeah. yeah so it's we just play the... Murphy and stuff. So um, you probably faced a couple of my friends' teams and then the 
12 years softball. Um, we've faced both of, both of them. So, and we've yeah. lost uh, each time. So, uh, <laughs> and I think we play one of them tonight. So I'm looking forward to losing again. Maybe, maybe, who knows? We'll see. But, uh, but, but yeah, so, the, so that's, that's pretty neat. I'd never heard of the, uh, the, the. Yeah, it's the Murfreesboro Clarks. Look it up on Facebook, C-L-A-R-K-E-S. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. If you like playing baseball, man, I, I kid you not. We can talk about it after this call, but. Okay, uh, we'll do that. Cause yeah, I played yeah. in, uh, I played in the Carbondale Park District Softball Adult League. And uh, uh, just this, the first time, just this last uh, couple months ago. So, so yeah, we will talk more about baseball. But let's talk about your career. Um, right now, you are your formal title is security architect, and functionally, you you are in charge of information security efforts, um, or you lead the information security efforts. Um, but I looked at your resume, and I saw something because you you sent me this yesterday, and I saw something the very very first thing on there that kind of uh you know kind of brought back memories for me and 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 my kids i don't remember which one but one of them actually asked me the other day what a radio shack was and i don't know how or why they asked me about radio shack but they did and i had to explain what a radio shack was like and all the little electronic components you could get there for 92 cents and stuff like that you worked was this your first job at a Radio Shack as a manager? Well, I was working since I was 13. Okay. So I've been, you know, did a bunch of little random jobs. That's just like where I start my professional stuff at. But yeah, I was, I was only 18 um, getting into that, um, that role. Um, okay. So really, really young, really early on in my career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I did a few jobs before that, but yeah. But this that was, was my back full time job. It was back in the time, maybe because for a while, Radio Shack was one of the few places that you could go and get like personal computers, you know, before we had tons of Best Buys all over the places and cir circuit cities and things like that from back in the day. But but Radio Shack, I mean, a blast from the from the past for those in this class and then to hear this that are uh, that remember Radio Shack um, because it was one of those cool places. If you were a geek, you could go in there and you could buy you know, I, I like to play around with some of the things you could build on from like the 2600 magazines and stuff like that. So I, I, uh, you know, would, would purchase little circuit boards and build little things with some of the components you'd pick up at Radio Shack and be like, hey, can you get me this 6.55367 megahertz crystal or something like that? And they'd be like, what's that for? Anyway, we won't, we won't go down that road. Um, but, um, but that's Carbondale cool. is actually one of the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was like, um, when I when I taught at John A, uh, one of the students I had was actually the manager for the Carbondale Radio Shack, and there's still a couple of Radio Shacks in the country, and Carbondale is one of the ones. It's still not there yet, so I don't think that it's going to happen. But they were seriously considering before COVID, um, going to open up an, another one in the Midwest, and that was going to be the one they're going to put the Carbondale because that was one of the more profitable stores, um, oh. even you know out of Chicago and stuff like that. The one that they're open up in, in Illinois was going to be in Carbondale. Um, but that never, obviously, pandemic hit. So that kind of stopped all that. I don't know if it'll ever kick off again. But it was just interesting talking to her and, you know, being a manager from, you know, two, day, two decades prior to that or whatever. It was kind yeah. of interesting. But 
So you grew up uh, in kind of the the west suburbs of Chicago, uh, southwest suburbs, Juliet. Yep. It says Westmont. You worked in Westmont, Juliet. Um, did you have access? I mean, you've been into technology ever since you were a little kid. No, uh, actually, I mean, I, I played ball a lot and stuff. I only like ever touched like you know like a Nintendo and stuff like that. Like over in the winter and stuff, I never. I broke stuff like I broke I broke my dad's VCR enough times where he like there was more super glue than there was plastic probably holding that thing together um and um I never touched tech until my senior year of high school um okay I, the only thing I ever touched a computer for before that was like Oregon Trail sure, or like doing idea. like a word perfect you know you know thing for a class maybe under the one off but um, I was going to graduate a year early, and I decided not to. Um, I didn't want to graduate early. I just happened to work out like that with the classes I was taking, and I needed classes to take. So my summer year of high school, I took five. There's seven periods in a day, so seven classes we can take. Five of those for me were were band and music, and I had to take something else for the other two. Well, they had just started up a new computer class. It was going to be taking up those two hours. And I was just like, what the heck? Why not? Right. It was, I don't want to take math and English and other stuff like that. Let's do this new tech class or whatever. Right. I'm like, I don't know anything. So you had to take typewriting. So I took a typewriting class the first quarter and then the last three quarters were for this computer class. And I don't know. Um, I always, growing up, you always say, you know, people, you know, you know, got a different plans for people and stuff like that. You know, people are, you know, destined to do X, Y, or Z. Um, computers just naturally fit like I started typing like you know 80 90 words a minute like my first quarter you know after I got off the typewriter and went to a keyboard it became really fast I hated a key typewriter because it was all the I was typing too quick right the hammers were hitting the heads all the time and stuff so um so anyway yeah I didn't touch a computer until my senior year of high school I took my graduation present to buy my first computer and then within a year I had eight computers, a second ISP line ran to my house and was tinkering with stuff like that. So I went from not touching anything, what was that, 95, not touching a computer in 95 to in 96, having eight computers in my bedroom and all the other stuff, like I said. <laughs> so were those those eight computers, were they just kind of a random collection or were you doing stuff with those eight computers? Uh, the first one was I bought because that was my graduation gift, right? So I bought that for myself with all the graduation money. I decided to to, to buy a computer, so I I got it from Walmart. Actually, it was a it was a compact, um, you know, forty six sixty six DX. Yep, and that's I bought it in May, and in like July it was making this funky noise, right? So I call over to Compaq and, you know, they're just like, oh, it sounds like it could be like a dirty fan or something like that, right? Based on the noises I was telling it was making. Uh, it might be a fan bearing going on or something like that. And they're like, okay, well, do you have a screwdriver? I'm like thinking, yeah, my dad's got a screwdriver downstairs, right? Like I'm just like fresh out of high school. And they're like, all right, you know, on the back there, you know, the computer. I'm like, wait, 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 what are you talking about? Like, you're going to have me open up a computer? Like, uh-uh, ain't going to do this. Um, so... But yeah, the person talked to me into it over the phone, really nice person, and talked me into opening up the side of the case and then seeing that there was a little bit and it just happened to be the the wire from the fan just kind of got moved up and it was just clicking against the wire. So I moved it back, put a little piece of electrical tape in there, called it good. Um, thanked the person on the phone. And then for whatever weird reason, I just got called to basically start taking it apart. So that summer, day by day almost, 
I would take out one piece of, of the computer and I would look at it and I put it back in. And then I turn on the computer and hope and pray that the thing would actually start again. The next day I would take out two components and fast forward to like right before my, Julia, uh, my junior college was gonna start that fall, the weekend before that, uh, my mom came home from, from work and she sees me on the living room floor with like my whole computer spread out in an arc around me, like all the parts of the case is empty at that point, everything's on the floor and stuff like that. Um, I was really good about having no static anything there, you know, cause it was on my nice carpeted floor and I did uh -huh. my due diligence of not, of grounding myself, but never, never used like a grounding strap or anything. Uh, didn't know that was a thing back then. Um, put it all back together though, and then I became the computer person. Um, and I just happened to look into finding a job at Radio Shack and didn't know anything about electronics, but they had computers and it looked like a cool place to work. It was a few doors down from where I quit at a, at a grocery store I was working at. I just was walking down there and I just happened to stop in there just to kind of see what was going on. And the person was like, hey, you interested in a job? Funnily enough, yes, I am. <laughs> so kind of lucked into that, but anyway. That's funny because I, I my my one of my first jobs I was working at a sandwich shop shop at the mall across the 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 way the cross the the aisle I guess or whatever you'd call the hall from a computer store and the guys at the computer store would come in and buy sandwiches from me and I said I know about computers and next thing you know I'm working building computers and fixing them that's the way things work. Um, yep, I've so, built way too many computers. Yeah, over the years now. So you 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 started out you've you your your interest in technology kind of had like a defining point it seems does that senior year of tech of of high school and now you're showing the Cubs uh which which I've, oh yeah awesome yeah. yeah I didn't even think I was doing that here sorry I just needed a drink <laughs> I don't have anything Cardinals here to put up on here but um, but uh -huh. but we'll we, we'll just we'll just stop that um, kind of that that area of conversations cardinals cubs thing we'll you're gonna edit this whole thing out aren't you <laughs> yeah you're, i'm gonna i'm gonna put i'm gonna put words in your mouth that say go cards go um so i actually did that um this is not uh, remember me to tell you a story later about what i did in my church and their dns for the cardinals i'll oh, play that after off the uh, off the record so you won't go to jail for it <laughs> yeah so, so you went to college at uh, JJC Joliet Junior College, which I think is one yep. of the oldest junior colleges in the country. Yep. Um, yeah, and and my 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 wife's grandfather taught there for many years in English, and um, you studied a what is it science? Yep, just a general degree um, in science. My family, my dad was very much, both my parents were really like, hey, you must go to college, right? I was already working full time, but they're like, you still got to go to college. So I did it for a semester um, back in 96 and it just didn't stick. Um, and it wasn't until my other jobs and we ended up getting laid off that I decided to go back to college and finish up my degree. But yeah. Okay. Um, but you didn't study technology and you ended up at southern illinois university and you ended up getting a degree in geology and geophysics what exactly does somebody do with a degree in geology and geophysics and and i see you know not just an, a, a a bachelor's degree but you got your master's degree in that tell us about that what was your your interest what did you want to do with those two degrees when you when you started studying at SIU a few years after uh, getting out of high school? 
uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was more than a few years. I worked for, um, this small company in cable industry and stuff for an ISP that became now it's Comcast. Um, but back when cable models were brand new, um, started there. Um, so I did that for, you know, four or five years before I was like in my mid twenties when I came back to college and oddly enough, when they were letting us, everyone in Chicagoland go, they were centralizing everything across the country, all the different knocks around the country, all being centralized to Denver. They wanted me to move to Denver and I just said, no, um, I'll stay in the Midwest. And, okay. um, and they, uh, so I was going to go back to school, right? I was going to figure out what else I wanted to do. That that job was going to be another temporary job. I wasn't planning on doing that for the amount of years I did that. Um, so I actually looked, found online. I, I took one of those, like, what do you want to be when you grow up kind of tests? Okay. You know, I took a few of those and every single one of them was all pointing to like, you know, physics and planetary stuff and rocks and stuff. That was my interest, right? I like space science and stuff like that. I never thought I'd actually do it for a career, but I was like, you know what, what the heck, why not? So I started looking up different um, fields and planetary geophysics is what I wanted to go to. So I came here, there's not a degree in planetary geophysics at SIU, there's a degree in geology with a specialization in geophysics. And then your master's degree can be in, you know, geology and geophysics as well. So that's what I came down here for was to, to study space rocks. Okay. Um, and, and once, and you did mention, I, sorry, I skipped over, you were working for the, the broadband company. And, and so these were the years when broadband really started getting in everybody's homes. Um, I mean, it, 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 it had began earlier than this, but this is when in the big cities, at least, um, you would see the, cause I, cause I worked, um, in some of this time doing the, the installs and helping with people. Uh, up in that area with when they get their brand new cable modems and stuff, I'd help them set up their computers and get them connected to the new wireless technologies that came out. Um, yeah, my mom worked at the cable company. So for some like about eight, nine years before I started working there. Um, so she did the cable TV side. And because she worked as an employee, we were like one of like the first hundred people in Chicago to actually get a cable modem. Um, so again, that, that's fast forward my my timeline for not having a computer at all in my house to within the first year having eight computers and a second dial-up line brought in the house to a few months after that having cable internet at my house, right? So, you know, within 18, 24 months, I went from like no technology in my house to broadband internet with like, you know, four or five switches and stuff in my bedroom and other stuff going on with that. Um, so technology in my house kind of exploded very quickly. Um, but yeah, when I started there, there was under a thousand people in all of Chicago who had a cable modem when I started there. Cause I started a few months after um, the whole thing got kicked off, but there was only 12 people who did all of the internet talking from the line text to the knock, the security side, the customer support side that did all of that. Um, there was only 12 of us. And so when I left, um, there was a hundred people active on the phone at a time. So the company in itself and all that, and it was a big learning experience. A lot of great people I worked with over the years for that, but, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then again, when they centralized all the network operation centers made it all, you know, from, you know, Chicago, Texas, Denver had one, Virginia, California, North Carolina, there's a bunch of them. They centralized them all and centralized support. And uh, yeah, I was like, nope, not going to stay here and not have, you know, have read-only access to the routers that we used to have access to. I'm like, I don't want to do with that. I'm just going to go back to school. And so when you finished your degrees at Southern Illinois University and, and while you were in school, you had some roles um, 
as as geologists and working in laboratories and surveying um tell us a little bit about this role with raytheon in maryland and nasa yeah that was i was really fortunate um so let me take one step back to answer um that's why i'm really passionate about the students and the employment stuff here is because I was fortunate enough when I came down here. I, I could have went to Arizona State, U of I, and here are the places I applied for. And I chose SIU because I was interested in music. My undergraduate or my, my Joey Junior College, I was getting a degree in, in science, but I took more band classes and music. Everyone thought I was a music major because I took all these different you know music things. Um, but when I was going to go to a bachelor's program, when I university I called up, they were like, why? Like, why do you want to why do you want to be in the band right at u of i and you know arizona state was the same thing like well what do you mean you want to you know be in the band you know you, you're not a music major and i'm like yeah you know i like music right so when i called siu it was a lot more open right everyone down here is you know you've been down here for years right everything's pretty relaxed and chill everyone likes to kind of you know do different things and it was just that that type of environment that i kind of just gravitated towards and maybe come down here um and i happened to luck into um you know, I, I asked, hey, can I, is there a job here, right? I was tutoring at my junior college. Is there something I can do, right? Can I be like an office worker? I just want to work in the department to kind of, you know, gain some knowledge from the people, you know, the faculty that are working around here, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, file your papers, right? I'll, I'll do the office work, whatever it is and stuff. And they're like, well, maybe, you know, just come down here and we'll see. And then they said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do, you know, planetary, you know, geophysics. I want to do, you know, this type of work. And there's a professor who had a NASA grant and just happened to be doing the same things that I wanted to do. Didn't know that going into it. Um, so I got put in touch with him like my first week or two on campus. And he was like, yep, hired me as a student worker. So I did my student worker gig and then was working a lot with these uh, people from NASA. And they said, yeah, we want you to, we want you to have an internship over the summer and stuff like that. So I um, worked directly for Raytheon instead of NASA. So I worked right through the companies that, you know, most of NASA's contractors. So that was the contracting, you know, government contractor does that work and, you know, great people there, you know, at Raytheon that I worked with, my professor in my undergrad program was really good to kind of get me set up with all that. And it was just a, a good experience overall. What so, did you, what did I, you do? What were you, what were you doing? Uh, modeling. Um, so there's a, there's a, a planetary system that's already been in, uh, not planetary, a satellite system that's already been put in place to study the magnetic field of the earth. Uh, called SWARM. It's an um, ESA, NASA joint mission. Uh, ESA led it. Um, so that was launched in like the mid 2000s, uh, 2010, maybe it was, eight um, in that range. I forget the year now. And uh, so I did work on a couple other um, satellites that were already in orbit for years that just happened to have magnetometers on it. So I was doing my work at SIU on the magnetic field of the Earth. And then um, using basically airborne stuff um, or, or marine-based um, imaging equipment, and they were looking at doing the stuff in the satellites and stuff at NASA. So I found these three um, satellites, Champ or Sac C, or the names of the satellites that basically were in different um, um, orbits around the Earth that all had magnetometers. So basically, my job was to um, find. Um, you know, times when those satellites were near enough each other to actually make the data useful and basically look at the potential field differences. So magnetic field differences and how it, you know, basically changes for the magnetic field for the earth. 
Um, and that's kind of what I did. So um, a lot of computational stuff on the side. There's a um, guy at NASA, I won't name names just to protect the innocent, super crazy smart dude with math and stuff like that. He was a, a mathematician and basically started working for NASA on the science side because of that. So he has a lot of like really cool um, like core dynamo um, models of the earth and how that works. So I basically used all of his knowledge under the hood and stuff like that and just kind of tossed the data on top of it and then looked at these, um, again, use it as a test bed basically for this okay. NASA ESA mission. So that, that data got used as a test bed to kind of help make sure that, yeah, this can, this science could actually be useful. We can actually send these satellites up and actually do what they say they're gonna do. Um, so that's kind of what I did over there. It was a lot of fun. I also got to rip a part of a NASA server like my first day when I was there because they knew I knew technology and I've always been like that here. So because I was always like redoing their tech there just because I had tech background. So um, I came to NASA late because I another opportunity with SIU. I got to go to England with the with the band here at SIU. So I had done that a week before um, my internship. So I actually started there a couple of weeks in and there's people with NASA internships already and they were still doing, like they've been there for like a week already and they're still doing like tours of like the base. And my first day, like NASA has me like ripping apart servers for them and stuff like that. Cause I'm like redoing all their, their infrastructure there. and was kind of helping them out with that. So it was funny cause they all walk in, they're like, oh, who's your like new full-time employee? Like, oh no, that's, that's our intern. Like, oh, when did you start <laughs> uh, today? You know, like three hours ago and he's already like, you know, elbows deep in you know servers and stuff taken apart there so uh, it's always been fun i've always had tech even when i was doing the science side so awesome well let's get back into the when you started kind of your role in technology um you started at siu in 2012 and that was after your degrees and you did some work um well tell us really quickly um what did you do when you were doing petroleum geology what was what was that role yeah so the the, the guy who was the uh, professor who got me into the nasa side um ended up leaving and going to a different university um and then i had a pivot you know did i want to stay in the midwest which i did because i was you know gonna get married and stuff like that at that time and also stay at siu um even though contrary you know it looks good to go to different universities for your bachelor's and and, and yeah. masters but you know i was there's problems that I had with some of my my student time before I started teaching. Um, I, I wasn't the best student early on, and uh, you can redact that part out, I guess, of this call. <laughs> um, but the um, but when this professor left, I was kind of like, do I want to stay or or do something else? And um, so I actually pivoted from planetary geophysics to petroleum because um, really it's hard to get into the into the planetary into into that side of of any any field, especially geophysics, there's only a few people that do that. Um, and most people that are in geology, geophysics, even if they are studying something else in geology, like geochemistry, they end up working for oil fields or something like, right? All the places that pay the big money, right? If you wanna make some money, that's what you do. Um, so I actually pivoted and, and started doing um, petroleum geophysics. So um, I've looked at and worked with some things on some big data since out of Texas, but Illinois actually used to be, um, used to be the big place to get oil. like way back when and stuff like that, you know, 40s and stuff. Before Texas boom became the thing, Illinois Basin was the biggest spot for oil in the country. So um, there's still a lot of families in the area in the Southern Illinois area who still, you know, you know, three, uh, when I was working for a company, I think he was the third, 
that he was a third generation of his family to be running this company and stuff like that for petroleum and stuff. So um, got lucky with them. Um, again, technical stuff. I helped them out with a lot of their tech stuff too. Um, but um, but yeah, I got to do a lot of um, secondary oil recovery and stuff in Illinois. So that was just a lot of fun. And again, look at geophysics and figure out, you know, we can't dig down, you know, thousands of feet in the earth and, and send probes down there, but we can do a lot of cool stuff with remote sensing and stuff. So um, I still like it. I still read up on it, but I don't practice it day and day anymore. <laughs> so, so what theme we've got is that you've worked in a lot of different kind of positions and areas and they all kind of take advantage of your interest in technology and your experience in technology um, that, and, and that's, I think, common of somebody who has like a desire to just know more about technology um and, and that that's that's cool because you know one of the things i like when we we have people that are um speaking to the classes and in this class when they work doing technology in like a kind of non-traditional field you know um i think that's always pretty interesting um so when you started at SIU and you're still at SIU, this is uh, 11 years later. Um, how did you how did you get into SIU? What was your experience like kind of moving into a, a full time role in, as an IT associate? And, and what, what did you start out doing here at SIU? So. Um, I was still in my master's program, actually. I was still, I was done with all my classwork. I was still just working on my thesis, which I was probably trying to turn into a dissertation with the amount of stuff I wanted to do into it. Um, so I was still involved in writing and research there. Um, but I had a kid a year before that, and we needed money. <laughs> so I needed to find a real job, my wife said. So um, she was working as a teacher before that. So I needed to get a, a full-time job, and I knew SIU was you know, one of the better places to work if you're in person, it's like, like SIU, SIH, right? There's only a few big companies here to, you know, try to get a job at. And I was like, I'm gonna just, I will do tech again, right? I did that before, at least do this as like a, a job to do for a few years while I finish up my master's and decide what I wanna do after that. Um, so it took me a bit, I applied here for probably six months, maybe it was probably January when I started, I probably got the call in like May or June, and then I got hired in October. Um, and um, when I got hired, there was two positions. One was just a phone support person um, answering, you know, the calls for Saluki Tech basically now that we call themselves. Mm -hmm. um, or there was a, a hybrid that did phone support and it did web development. So when I was in my interview, you know, like most interviews, you know, it's all about the person. And I just like was telling them, I'm like, I don't, I need a job, right? I want a job. Both of these fields are cool. If you find some rock star, web programmer person you know let them do that i'll do the phone stuff if you find someone that's not here's my experience right here's what i know about web design here's what i know about html here's what i know about web servers you know, here's the kind of work i did in the past i'm like you tell me which one you want me to do i'll take either job right um so i got the job with with both the web and the um the help desk side so i was on the phones for a day maybe um when i when i was first getting interviewed they said you know have you ever been experience on the phones right and i was like yeah i, I used to run a hundred person call center right you right. know <laughs> uh, you know and they uh they're like yeah you do fine here <laughs> so i think our call center was like six people maybe with including students so. sure yeah uh, and and i probably had some of those students in my classes back then um probably. so your your role doing 
web stuff were you were you writing or building web pages was this back in the days before we had cascade i assume and yeah um i talked to um to web services um before i even got my first day on the job because um the person who was hiring me was like yeah you're going to do this thing we're moving over to a new content management system cascade and so i'm just like trying to you know get in front of the eight ball so i call over to the web services and was like hey this you know i haven't started yet i start like next week and you know my name is richard smith and you know this is what i'm going to do for it and stuff and i heard that we're going to be going this way um i just need you know i guess just want to introduce myself and you know get to what i need to do and they're like what are you talking about like because at that time if you remember they had a, a entire calendar of when certain departments were going into cascade right they were rolling it out and it thought that we were on this one list to start right then but we weren't on a list for like a year and a half so okay. so they're like you know you're way like not only are you ahead like calling me before you even started working here right you know it's like the friday before i was going to start on that next monday um but no like it's not even in the in the that neighborhood yet so they're like go back and talk to your boss and figure out what's going on so um so when i started we um it itself had probably eight or 10 different web servers, right? We had, you know, Joomla and WordPress and just some pure HTML sites and stuff. They're all over the place. So I probably spent the first six months um, doing nothing but like getting all that data together, right? Not, not necessarily changes in platforms, but understanding what we had out there because we're going to move it all into Cascade. What is that going to look like? So I started like kind of taking that step and was like, what does IT have? It's a good way to kind of you know, really get yourself involved with the organization too, is all the help and support articles, all the websites that we had, you know, I had to pretty much ingest all that to myself and learn what we're all talking about. I didn't do half of the thing. I mean, I'd been a student for, what was I a student for uh, six years before I got that job? Um, no, nine years. And uh, so I knew SIU in some technology, but never working for central IT. So there's a lot of things that we did I didn't know about. So it was a good learning experience. Right. And so back then, um, and, and I've, you know, I've been here since 2008, I think, and, and the, it's been neat to see how SIU's Office of Information Technology has changed because it used to be very siloed where, you know, there wasn't a very strong IT, central IT presence and departments got to do what they wanted and they'd have their own IT people and this department might have this type of server and this department might have that type of server and they're running like you said joomla and they're running uh, wordpress for their content management and some people are just doing straight html and and so it was all quite a bit um mismatched mismatched or a mishmash and you know that introduces a lot of kind of potential headaches because you know there's 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 various levels of um understanding of, of security uh, that across those who are maintain and administer these these servers and these systems um, and and no real like consistency uh, across the university in terms of what things look like on different people's sites different sites for different units you may have one unit who's got you know flashing animated gifs on their homepage, you know blair you know and and others that might look perfectly professional and it just wasn't a great look for the university and so there's a lot of smart things that went along with centralizing all the web services and moving everybody to a common platform but again like you said you had to cop in and figure out what was what because you know SIU had this long timeline of how they were moving 
websites and web services from different departments to the new system. Um, and, and knowing what is out there is a lot of times a, 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 a common thing that I hear people when they're talking about starting a new job get responsive you know get the responsibility for you know figuring out what's running figuring out what is here and there and helping to document it because a lot of times it seems like people get hired and they're thrown into these projects where automatically they're just you got to figure out what's on this and that and this and document it so we can move forward which i guess is a good learning experience um but but sometimes 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 yeah, yeah. Other times it can be a tremendous pain in the butt and make you feel like you want to just bang your head into the monitor over and over again. I'm sure, um, but you, you've, you've, you've I'm moved. I'm a big advocate for help desk. Yeah, and I, you know, one of one of my first jobs here at SAU was help desk. I worked Saluki before it was called Saluki Deck. It was just called the help desk. Computer Support Center. Yeah, the CSC back in yep. the early That's 2000s. My 2012 it was still called csc we, we branded saluki tech like within my first year here or whatever um okay. but yeah um but no i mean even even now like i've been in i've been in industry for you know heck 25 years if you count everything um but even now like if i were to go to a different company right if i would even like, executive level right if i was given the choice like hey do what what do you want to do for your first month here or whatever like i'd spend a solid week or more um actually in the help desk, like answering calls, because that's where you're going to see all the stuff, right? That's, that's a big thing. You know, people look down on that. Sometimes they're like, yeah, those aren't technical people or things like that, or not as technical. And maybe in some truth, not as technical as others, but they need to, they need to understand the entire organization, all the processes and how the systems are connected and stuff to be able to get a person that's having an issue, you know, to resolution, right? So that's, that's a big thing there. So understanding an organization, what the struggles they are, I think all kind of starts at the help desk. So, um, and, and even, I, now, even now being there for years, I'd still do it if I went into a new company. And, and I just spoke with, uh, yesterday for this, uh, haven't even uploaded his stuff yet, but Alex Eluate, um, who works for Meraki, Cisco Meraki as help desk, and he's troubleshooting, you know, VLAN trunking across uh, access points for his customers as part of his help desk role and all sorts of technical stuff. It's really, you know, like you said, some people bash the help desk, um, but it's, it's necessary. And, and it's, um, there's, there's more to it than just logging, you know, logging people's resets of their passwords and stuff when you answer the phone. Um, and, and you gotta really, if you're doing good at it, you have to know how to get people to being fixed, right? You know, that, that was one thing I always prided myself on because that's what I started doing a lot with that broadband company. I did a lot of support cases there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, yeah, it's just some of the really easy, low-hanging fruit kind of stuff that you think. Um, but then other times it gets pretty complex. Um, and um, I mean, I sat down with a company who was adamant that, there, um, that it was our network failing them as an ISP um, for their company back before business internet was really a thing. You know, we we're just kind of, you know, tread in those waters. So there wasn't really too much support we provide. Well, I got to the point where I literally like, I sat underneath my desk, you know, with my, you know, headset, you know, line going down there and pulled out some pads of paper. And I actually wrote out and had them walk me through over the phone, their entire network diagram, right? From our modem, you know, from the internet coming into the house, uh, into the building there, from their modem, through every single switch and router that they had set up for their entire company. 
and had them walk it all out and basically wrote out their network map on paper, you know, on the floor here. And when I, I was like, okay, cool, thanks. And then that afternoon when I was looking through it more, I realized here's your problem right here. They basically had, I think it was a printer um, that was basically cabled in wrong. So they actually had the printer um, sending back feedback loops to one of the routers that was actually causing the router to pretend that it to be the, um, the main route out to the internet. So that mm -hmm. was creating a loop internally that was actually cutting off access to a certain portion of their network and stuff like that. So when I called up the person again and talked them through that and said, here's where I think your problem is. They're like, oh no, there's no way that's the case and stuff. And I was like, well, you, you read me over the phone lines A to B and where they're all going, right? And this is where I, I wrote down. So maybe I wrote it down wrong and they did it. And sure enough, that's what it was. And um, so cases like that were, you know, a lot of fun, but yeah, that's more of the exception than the norm. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I don't think most hosts help they'll touch that probably won't go to that level of detail either, but yeah. Right. And and and, and that is uh, you know, I think like you said, like an exception more than the rule today, because I think so much well, it depends on the help desk. We won't go any further in that because we could spend forever talking about help desks. You know? Um so you're 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 up to SIU doing software licensing and campusing wide print services. Software licensing. Um, one of the first big things when when I started um, the career, or the, I guess the, the job before I started here was I had to go in and fix a big problem with software licensing because it's not something that oftentimes you learn about. I mean, it's not something we talk about a ton in in our iTech classes. It just um, it's one of those things that, that, that gets um, kind of overlooked unless you're in that role where you're starting to do the budgeting for a big project or you're procuring assets for your department or your organization. And then you start seeing, whoa, that software that I've been using as a regular end user, it's not free. It's something that we have to pay for. And so I walked into on more than one occasion, you know, big deficits of licensing um, just because I don't think, you know, companies necessarily are trying, I mean, some of them are, they're trying to steal stuff and it's getting harder and harder. Um, but not everybody realizes you're supposed to be paying for this copy of this software that runs on your, um, your machine. Um, what kind of was your role when you were that coordinator of software licensing campus printing? How, how did, you know, how, how was licensing maybe a challenge at an academic institution? What did you have to do there? Were there anything like? Yeah, I mean, I was still projects? doing the web stuff. So when I, when I went away from the support side, I still kind of kept the web. So there's really two titles I had in there, two lines for my signature. But yeah, the, um, the, the software licensing part was the, a little bit working with the procurement side, you know, really I was, I was a lot lower, you know, on the food chain or whatever you want to call it um, at that point. But the, um, the hardest role with academia, um, I kind of explain it like when you work in IT as an academics, it's kind of like we're like NATO because like every college is like their own country. Every professor is like their own state, right? You know, because every professor has their own research, right? And they like to do things their way. So they're like a state organization. The colleges become like country, you know, it really kind of works like that, right? It's it pretty complex in the academic world with the amount of, of different things that are being done across the organization. Some, you know, 
levels or expectance of autonomy and you know things in certain areas that make it kind of challenging to, you know from multiple levels including software um but you know for my end it was all the centralized softwares and also looking at um you know the licensed servers for campus right you know some departments kind of like you're talking about that earlier with like everyone had their own domain everyone had their own mail server everyone had their own licensed servers right and it was complex to renew those things and it was like do you really want to do this and a lot of people were like no like we just have to because we want to make the software work and i'm like you know we can do that centrally anyway we already have one that we kind of ran for like a couple of our computer labs that was it so i said let's just do it for the whole campus so i started centralizing all these software license servers across campus and you know putting those all in there together and helping different units with their different scripts to kind of make that stuff work um and just ultimately try to you know try to collaborate and at least figure out you know what the what the academic units were using certain pieces of software for, even if we didn't have a IT didn't have like a direct say in a, in a you know, particular piece of software, just trying to get an idea what was out there and stuff. Um, but I mean, oddly enough, even to this day, I still kind of do a little bit of that when it comes to my security role with third-party reviews of software and stuff like that in some regard. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it was fun. It was an interesting challenge and stuff like that. Um, Canvas toy printing was, was pretty much set the way it was but back then they had like a full tower workstation and and you know keyboard mouse and and um, monitors set up for like every you know it was like a full computer sitting next to every printer even though it was you know vended print through your debit dog card um and we at the time had the, the tablet initiatives and stuff like that so i was like i went from the full desktops to a thin client which is like a keyboard mouse and the monitor no no computer anymore was thin clients that would go back to to a Linux box in the background, and then decided, you know what, we're just gonna put all this on tablet. It made it all touchscreen. I think there's still some of those out there. They've they've made that even better. They're all like built into the printers now. But um, kind of went through that type of you know trajectory and stuff like that. But I mean, ultimately, technology to me is all about like you know improvements in technology, improving processes and workflows. Like that's what I like to about tech. Like I love getting in the weeds on like coding and doing things but at the same time i have almost as much interest and sometimes more um on like the problem solving right like getting not just like making an interface for a user or to solve a problem but like make it in a way that that they want to use it right not like i have to you know it doesn't want to i don't want to shove it down someone's throat like i want to de design and develop a process or a system in a way that makes them say you know what yeah i can see how that's going to make my job and my life easier and stuff um, or do this other cool thing that we couldn't do before so and that's ultimately, I mean, the purpose of technology uh, and yep. IT. You know, IT we teach is an enabler for business and and solving problems and and you know whatever your organization does, technology should be there to help it do that main mission. Um, yep. And so, like like you're saying, you you work through the improvements for as an example campus-wide printing so students need to be able you know not every student has a printer in their dorm room so they need to be able to print stuff to turn things in because professors used to always want paper copies of stuff you know um so you'd have to run to a computer lab and you'd have to sign on to computer lab and you'd have to say print and then run over to the the print station and put your saluki card in there and have it print off your you know off your account and 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 you know it's a it's 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 interesting now just to kind of reflect back because i'm realizing more and more every day how long i've been in this role 
Um, it's a long time, 16 years. And the, you know, when we talk through some of these things, seeing just the improvements um, across campus technology, um, at like printing and software licensing and things like that. But I think no more, um, nothing more than probably security um, have I seen as like kind of a, and 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 an approach um, that that really I think has made tremendous strides um, over the years. And and let's let's kind of talk to um, that because we're getting close to running out of time. Um, Can I say one thing real quick? Yes, me? say whatever you uh, like. So just with regard to printing, um, just because this is the students and I like to at least impart a couple of bits of knowledge to people I don't really even meet, probably I'll never meet half the students that you're going to have in this class. But, you never know. They may uh, end up working for you. We'll talk about maybe. that next. Um, the one thing I was told there that, that always hits me that I try to impart on everyone is, you know, we're all, if we're all interested in technology, different things, um, but sometimes you, a lot of times we get involved really deep in the weeds and I do myself I love getting into tinkering and doing stuff but you never want to make it to like that's the only thing you do in technology to me I've, I mean I'm a little bit of atypical maybe like I I'm way involved with way too many different things in my in my own you know interest in technology but try to not get yourself completely siloed into only one thing because um, one time when I was doing printing pretty early on um no, it wasn't early. I mean, it was probably, I was deep into it. It was probably a year or two I was into it. And I get asked by someone because I'm the first day I was in printing, I was getting rid of all the paper-based trails, right? We had to, you had to do a paper, you know, fax in if you wanted a new printer. And so you had to like send a fax over to like IT to request like a new printer. Like all everything was like paper-based and like very slow campus mail and stuff like that. And I was just like, no, like this is ridiculous. Like I am not going to like operate like this we, we just take way too long to fix these things and someone that when i start making it all digital and stuff and changing these processes around i get asked by a couple of people people on more than one occasion they go but you're the printing guy like you're putting in these digital processes now to replace <laughs> paper aren't you putting yourself out of a job and i just laughed I mean, my dad did was a um, was, worked as a pre-press manager for his most of his career and stuff like that in the in newspaper industry and stuff like that, which is basically, you know, in the, near dead now, right, from the right. newspaper as a whole, right? And I just laughed at him. I said, if SIU's only point for me, you know, to work here was they're, they're investing in me because I'm the printer person, then I don't want to work here. Right. right. That's not my, that's not me. Right. You're investing in the in the person and what they're doing and stuff. So, you know, technology, good, bad or otherwise and stuff like that. Anything that you do, whether it's tech or otherwise, like people are investing in, in you as an individual and the teams that you're building. It's not necessarily in the work you're getting work done. But I, I just always caution people to like not get super focused on that. Because I, I, I literally was like laughing at the person. I'm like, maybe if they end up letting me go because I get rid of all the paper across campus and there's no more need for campus -wide printing services. And that's the only way they're hiring me here now. Then so be it. I'll find another job somewhere. Right. I'll do something else. Right. I'm not going to be. You know, I don't, don't want to be too flippant about it. You know, getting a job and keeping one and stuff like that is important. But at the end of the day, you know, yeah, it's the people that matter, not necessarily the trinkets. It's cool the trinkets are to work with. Sorry, that's yeah. about security. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think I mean that's that's when I look at the roles that you've had. It's been you know you you've been in a role and you've you've made a lot of cool um improvements like you talk about with the the campus-wide printing and those types of things 
um, allow you to build yourself a pathway to more responsibility and more interesting, you know, um, roles. And and so let's talk about systems um, because I think that probably had a a huge um, impact on you just understanding how SIU ran as a whole um, in terms of the computing infrastructure that 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 kind of makes the campus work. So so how did you get the role in systems or maybe what was your you know kind of primary role when you worked in systems? Uh, so I led the the infrastructure, the Windows side specifically um, for systems. Um, it was mostly just all Windows-based OSs. Um, I have a lot of hardware experience, so I've kind of injected myself into someone like the data center, you know, stuff a little bit there too. I've always liked hardware, um, but um, yeah, I mean, just everything that runs underneath the hood, um, all the hypervisors and stuff that makes stuff work. If, back when I first started in systems, it wasn't primarily that we had a little bit of a virtual infrastructure, but there's a lot of physical machines. So my first couple of years there was spent a lot with, with uh, my team working through those physical to virtual migrations and stuff, getting everything off of, I mean, the, the amount of rack space that we don't use now in the data center that we used to use is, is pretty crazy. Um, um, virtualization changed a lot. So, um, you know, there's a lot of those types of projects and I was involved a lot with, you know, the initial setup of our Azure instances and stuff like that. So, um, and still work on that to this day, um, to some degrees. And, um, so, I mean, ultimately like every other job I've had too, but that team, especially, um, I've had like one or two people that worked with me or for me in my other previous roles, but systems was the first one where I actually had like, you know, a number of people, right? Five to seven, eight full-timers and students underneath, you know, behind that too, instead of just like one full-timer and a couple of students, you know, I had a pretty decked out full-time team that were all awesome people and are awesome people. I have them still work here. And yeah. uh, so that made my job, you know, easier in that regard, right? I was a senior sysadmin, team lead. So, you know, I kind of imagine that job as like a teeter-totter, right? I'm like the senior sysadmin needing to like focus, you know, be like the subject matter expert across, you know, various you know a wide variety of technologies and um also lead the team to be able to you know who would heavily focus on a, a few of those technologies and stuff like that so um do that balancing act a little bit there but ultimately you know just you know been fortunate and blessed enough to work with a lot of like really good people across siu and yeah. that was you know a great team to work with and stuff so and during this time, like you said, you're doing a lot of um, of migrations to virtual machines from physical. Uh, SIU has shifted from their the, and this was probably a little bit before, but from the the, the buy-in on Google and Google Apps to Microsoft and the Office 365, and and kind of uh, uh, starting to kind of push things up into the cloud. Um, and so, just a lot of neat things that, as a senior systems admin team lead you got to be a part of i'm sure so that was i'm sure as somebody who likes yep. to learn and and uh tinker that was probably a lot of fun yeah identity access management we rolled out new solutions with that there's yeah there's a lot of projects that were involved we took over for the siu foundation um they had their own it team they end up outsourcing to central it so then we took over all their infrastructure um i've helped um some units in uh up in springfield um Mm -hmm. part of a um Med they had they had servers that were not the school of medicine but another smaller unit out of springfield that was okay. part of siu they um they had a 
some data center that actually ran out of uh, Chatham, Illinois, and a secondary data center out of Murfreesboro, actually, out of the school district, had their own little you know, cluster back then and getting them all moved over to, to cloud and stuff like that. So yeah, there's, like you said, there's a way more than enough uh, things to do over there and things to learn and stuff to the point where I was working a lot of very long days to kind of get myself to the point where I really think I, you know, you know, was able to, to do the job pretty well and stuff. Um, but like any other job you walk into, like I always walk into a job thinking, oh great, am I, Am I the right guy for this one? You know, you know, they hire me. Am I going to get it done the right way? You know, there's always these, these uncertainties and stuff like that. You know, there's, um, but that makes it fun and you know, learning and stuff like that. So, and I guess one thing that we should just mention because there's, I mean, a lot of the students are here, um, are not from this area and maybe never even have been here. But SIU is by far the largest employer in Southern Illinois. Um, as last I heard, at least, um, and yeah, I'm not sure if SIH has a seat or not, but yeah, as a whole, SIH probably does, but because there's a lot of areas and it, but it's it's other areas in, the, in here, but yeah, this is the this is a, a huge economic engine. For, this is the economic engine for the Southern Illinois area. Yes, if uh, if SIU isn't around, a lot of people wouldn't be here, and SIH would not close their doors, but they have a lot less offices than they do now. Right, and so so when we're talking about scope, I mean, this is on par with the you know, um, a large corporation, you know, but it's an academic unit. So the mission's different, but technology needs are still there just like you would in a for-profit business or, you know, something like that. So you, you work in systems and then you move over and you get an opportunity to work with security. And so this is when I've gotten to know you the best is because you are now responsible for security at SIU and you have been for several years. Um, and I teach a lot of cybersecurity, so you've been great with helping come in and talk about certain topics, and, and, and you've got a lot of students that have worked for you over the years. Do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about what your role is today in terms of uh, security across the organization? Yeah, I mean, pretty much anything that touches security, I have at least a little bit of a hand into. Um, again, it's not a one-man show here to me. It's always, you know, teams and stuff like that, working with people. So I still heavily involved with the infrastructure team, heavily involved with campus units, academic units now and stuff. Um, but yes, we, we're largely a Microsoft security shop now, um, kind of centralized on that for a lot of different tool sets that we use um, and made in a lot of advances there. So when I first came here, um, I want to say, we were more reactive than we are now. So I think now we're a little bit more proactive in some of our, of what we do, um, but ultimately just trying to ultimately get the, you know, mitigate the risk as much as we can with the university, right? You know, some people think uh, it's all like the movies, right? Where we're all sitting there like fighting the hackers and things like that. And, you know, laughingly, we can kind of joke around that it's like that in some parts, but realistically it's, it's you know, risk mitigation and looking for things, right? We're there's things that we have to do in order to operate as an academy here, um, research and, and other things, teaching that we need to do um, that opens us up, just up, opens us up to risk. And, you know, my job ultimately is to, you know, mitigate and, you know, detect if reduce bad things happen, <laughs> reduce yeah. transfer, however you can, however it makes sense to best deal with risk that falls kind of, under your purview yeah um we have to put all the technology too which is fun but yeah exactly ultimately my, my job is yeah it's the way i look at it it's, it's a whole across security is to 
is to manage and mitigate that risk as much as we can, put security tools in place and help empower everyone to be able to like even detect it themselves, right? We, I love it when, when a, a user would be like, hey, something looks funky here. And they, they come to us and say, hey, we think, is there something wrong here? And, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, no, you're fine. But sometimes it's like, oh, no, you're right. That we missed that, right? Or, you know, and use that as an education experience for them too. So, um, so you've got a couple things. Do you have like 15 more minutes? Yeah, okay. So you gave me a list of some of the things you've done over the couple of years related to security. So if I mention these, can you briefly just tell us in a minute what you did, what it was? So tell us about Proofpoint. So that was the first, that was the first thing I got handed to me. Um, I was working infrastructure. We handled a lot of the security side. Like I was, I was always pushing security um, at the security team. Sometimes even when I was infrastructure, it was like, Hey, we should do this or do this. Um, Proofpoint was kind of shared by between security and infrastructure teams. Um, and that was our mail hygiene, our, our email security solution. And they were great. I, I love that company, the, the product that they had was awesome. But from a budgetary standpoint, it just wasn't tenable. Microsoft didn't do what we needed to do back when I was on the infrastructure side, but they started having advances. And I was like, kind of brought it up to our CIO at the time. I was like, hey, we might be able to kind of use some of the Microsoft tooling, at least augment Proofpoint. And then some budget hits really happen and they're like, we have to get off Proofpoint. And that just happened to coincide with me getting hired here. They're like, so first job was get off of Proofpoint, go to Microsoft. So there's a lot of complexities. The email is, you know, seemingly, you know, easy, right? It's like, you know, picking out the trash, right? It's, it's just something you do every day. Um, but from a backend infrastructure and how it all works together, it, it, it gets pretty complex. Um, so yeah, there is, there's a little bit of that um, to kind of get off of their systems and into the new ones. And, and, and you mentioned budgets and that's something I've seen in the last 10 years, you know, the budgets have shrank in a lot of the areas across campus. And so maybe you have this awesome tool that does everything you want, but you got to make some change, some choices, some hard choices. And so uh, being flexible and nimble and knowing where you can make cuts and changes is, is oftentimes a, a role that maybe in technology you didn't expect, but you get thrown into. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's, that's the way it is sometimes. Um, so you talked about Microsoft and the shift towards being a more Microsoft security um, centered shop. Um, you talk about security tool set, Microsoft security tool set improvement. What is, what exactly was that kind of project or initiative that you mentioned? Yeah, so when I got hired, it started with that, right? They, they, they cared about mail security because the security team was largely focused on email, right? If you get spammed, that's bad. You got to remediate and you know compromise account, et cetera. Um, but there's a ton of stuff, a ton of telemetry that we're getting in the Microsoft stack just because, you know, we use Microsoft accounts. Most of the machines are Windows-based, right? There's tools that we that they have, but we weren't using them or they weren't configured right or, or both. And um, so... That's largely what I've been doing over the years. The first thing was moving ATP um, into Microsoft's, you know, mail hygiene from Proofpoint. And I said, I don't want to just stop there. Like there's an entire catalog of stuff we can do here. And let me basically drive that. And the CIO was kind of like, yeah, you, you know, you do you get it, <laughs> do as much as what you, what you want. So, um, so I always work on more than one project at a time. It's just the way I operate. Um, I naturally have like four or five spinning plates at once with different, you know, sometimes small projects, sometimes major projects and, you know, either directly or indirectly involved with. And um, so there's, um, we've gone to the point now where we are usually 
resetting passwords and a process that we call remediation internally, um, where we basically, to the end user, it looks like it's a password reset, but behind the scenes, there's a lot more, right? If a, if a user gets compromised, um, they could have, you know, forwarding rules set up, they can have their email signature chain, they can have other accounts connected to their systems and stuff like that, right? There's a lot of things that a bad actor can do to your account. Um, and way back when, when I first started here, um, we used to rely on end users to do that. So we would, if your account was compromised, you would call into Saluki Tech and we would walk you through like 22 steps. It was like a half an hour call. And we go, hey, look at your email signature. Does that look okay? We're putting all the onus on the user. And it was just, it was really bad from a support and from an end user, you know, feeling perspective. Like they already felt bad enough they had to get their password reset because they might have got compromised. And now you're basically giving them the third degree, walking them through 22 steps or 28 steps of, you know, technology stuff that they have no idea about, right? To someone who might not be very technical, even the technically savvy people weren't happy. So and they could, they could went, very easily miss something, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. Cause you're telling them something to do over the phone and they may, you know, misclick the wrong thing and they'd be, you know, zombie brain dead by the time you get to step 29. And then the, helping make sure the help desk all says the exact same 28 things in the same way that's repeatable. So when I went to infrastructure, I was like, hey, let's just make this automated, right? So that was one of the things I was doing over there was, you know, develop some scripts and some backend to do that. And uh, so when I came to security, you know, being able to, you know, modernize those tools even more from like an on-premise script server to like a GitHub server with some like, you know, actions in Azure and stuff like that. Probably move to like Jupyter Notebooks and other tech and stuff, you know, in the next year or so. But um, but yeah, the the security tool set as whole for Microsoft. Now we've moved our our authentication. We used to be um, our SAML side was ADFS on premise, um, Active Directory Federation Services, and there was some shibboleth behind that. That's a Linux-based you know open source system for that, um, for some of the other protocols, and we moved all that authentication to Azure AD. So now we have even more telemetry. We already had some of that telemetry because you signed into your email account. Well, now all your sign-ins are going through your Microsoft account, you know, managed so by SIU. When you say telemetry, explain that. Um, basically, whenever you sign in, um, you're recording this, so I can't say everything, I guess, without scaring a lot of people. But, it, you know, you get you get all the bits of information from someone they sign in, right? I know your IP address, your device, you know, who you sign in it as, where you're getting your authentication experience kind of coming from. So that all this ton of telemetry gets sent into there and Microsoft has tooling and you know tweaking that we do and some things that they do natively that basically triggers alerts so if if a, if a user is atypically accessed if a user account is being atypically accessed it will throw off alerts um, and that's one thing that my students are heavily involved with are you know I say it's a student empowered um, SOC a student empowered security operations center because they look at that daily we look at we deep dive probably a hundred or more accounts a day and, and um, the telemetry and, is the the artifacts associated with what you do when you log on where it came from how many times you put your passwords in wrong you know the exact time all these little time stamped events um that, that and when you sign in what the device is yes yeah so it's just the stuff that normally is kept track of when you're doing things on a network and and it's you know things have stuff's been logged across Microsoft and network infrastructure forever. You guys are just finding better, more efficient ways of of uh, being proactive in terms of security uh, when you when you have events that can be analyzed and pick out problems um, and and are better aware of how to respond it. And so you you talk about, like you just said, the student centered security operations center. Our student was it student empowered? Student empowered, yeah. 
tell us what that means, because that's one of the coolest things. You know, student workers have have been employed in in campus IT and infrastructure with lots of network engineering systems uh, and, and now security. Tell us kind of like what you've been doing in terms of um, trying to like involve the student workers um, get them in, in kind of their in, in these roles, what they do. Um, tell us about that stuff. Yeah. So again, I was I was fortunate enough to get all kinds of student roles. I did a, a you know, student worker. I was an undergrad assistant. I was a grad assistant. I was a teaching assistant. Right. I did the whole gambit of every student job type that you can have. Um, but um, in security, our student workers when I got hired here we're largely looking, we're creating new user accounts, right? For like departmental, if a department needs a new user account for some purpose, security was the one creating those accounts and approving those accounts. Like, um, like here and, at iTech, we have an iTech general purpose email account for you know somebody who finds the web page and has a general question. Right, so that account gets created, our normal student and faculty employee accounts get created automatically through our um, identity access management solutions um, you know, based on banner data, right? You get an employee, you get hired, it triggers off certain workflows that, you know, kick downstream to create your account and everything. But these, you know, out of band, we call it, or the, you know, the department that needs access to something, that's not something that we track. That's something that, you know, uh, someone needs to request, right? So that goes through a request process, um, security approves it. And then the student workers were largely doing that. They would log into our network ID in environment. They would, you know, put the information that was needed in there and basically generate this account, which then would generate email addresses or whatever their access that they need that, you know, have for that account to do what it needs to do. Um, but that was like the extent of what the students were doing, right? And I was like, we have two student workers here that are doing this. Uh, I was like, I have no, I have one full-timer and I want to do more. I need more. So they said, okay, we can't hire a new full-timer, but you can get a, you can get a grad assistant, right? So within the first month or two, I, you know, um, started putting stuff out there, was able to hire a grad student and then get some extra student workers. Now I've sit at like two GAs, four or five student workers. Um, and they basically, not even joking, when it comes to security operations, they do more work than the full-timers do because they sit and look at all the alerts that come in, all the different data points that we have and basically look for, again, largely focused when I came here on account compromise, because again, we were only creating accounts. And my first year here, or my first year, it was my first like three months here, I knew what I wanted to do from, from the system side that I always wanted security to do. So now I became the security, so I'm like, I get to do what I want to do, because now I'm the one in charge of it, right? So, yep. <laughs> um, so things I was, was kind of like hoping that security would eventually do, I'm like, I can do it now. So I kind of wore both hats, the security and the infrastructure hat, and, um, I shouldn't even admit this on camera probably, but um, I will say within my first three months, I forced password changed almost a thousand accounts um, for SIU that um, were compromised and basically started developing processes and they hired my GA and, you know, after I, I remediated like the first 800, 900 accounts and then I had my GA finally was able to start then and I kind of was telling her, hey, here's, here's what we're doing and stuff and here's my base process, kind of start taking a couple of bits. I do flush them out and kind of work on it and just ultimately just kind of build upon things, you know, with them. And then my student workers who were only doing account creation, I was like, hey, what do you all want to do? Like, is this all you want to do? You know, can we do more and stuff like that? And they're all like, yeah, can we do more? You know, <laughs> we're getting kind of sick of just creating accounts all day, right? You know? That's um, boring. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so they kind of, you know, kind of got into, you know, into it too and stuff. And, and again, you get fortunate and find, find good people and stuff. And 
ultimately just have a lot of fun, you know, kind of, you know, fun in the in the technical sense, right? Not fun finding people's accounts that are compromised and the bad things happen there, but you know, you like the the technology stuff. Um, part. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's not so find them and get them to learn it, and ultimately. Their job and the, how I instill on everyone with them, with what they do day to day is I'm not just looking for the person that spammed the account or the one alert that we got, right? Hey, I found out that John Doe's account was compromised because then a Microsoft alert got triggered or they spammed us or something like that, right? That's just, that's the low hanging fruit, right? We know about that one. What else did that bad actor do, right? Does the IP address, does, does that look similar? Is there other telemetry that we have, other user actions that that user did um, the bad actor, I should say, did that might be able to help find them more, right? So take one account compromise and turn it into five or 10 or more and stuff like that. So, you know, do they have access to this one account? You know, more than likely, no, they have access to multiple accounts, right? So it's always, you know, they, again, I say they deep dive 100 accounts. That's 100 alerts of accounts they get into. They might go through more than that because, you know, one person might be sending IP, you know, emails and spam. And they're actually access five other accounts, right? And those five other accounts are popped, right? Too. So then the one remediation turns into five and stuff. So um, makes it wasn't. I hope this was not very happy with me at the very beginning because that was a lot of calls in when I was, you know, re forcing password resets for hundreds of accounts. Right. Um, but now it's really manageable, and we still work with them really closely. And especially if there's cases where we notice that hey, a lot of people clicked on this bad URL now, you know, because we got that level of detail now where. A spam message comes in and we get it kicked out of the system, but 12 people clicked on it beforehand. I know who those 12 people are. We can re either remediate their account or send them an email on the side, post something on Twitter or something to that effect and say, hey, you know, the job scam there, whatever kind of scam comes out there. So um, again, back to the students, they do. They do the majority of the work. They ask Larry and I, hey, we need a second opinion on this. And um, they all have internships in the summer, so they're all involved with different projects too now. And I can talk about that at a different point if you want, but I'll move on to your next question if you have. Yeah, well, we I wanna I wanna get things wrapped up. So tell us some of these projects and then tell us kind of like your goals for um, what you know what you hope to accomplish with this with the student empowered sock and and the um, thing we've been working on a little bit, trying to help find these positions, these students worker positions for. Yeah, so I think we've already proved that, you know, that it's possible, it can be done, we can trust students, right? That was some of the big thing was like, you know, do you have the level of trust, right? And there's certain things they don't have access to, but there's a lot of things they have access to. But the same yeah. thing could be said with the help desk or anyone else, right? You have access as a help desk person to reset the password to the chancellor, right? So, you know, it, there's a lot of things that you can that you can do, and it's just knowing and getting people in the seats that you know that you can trust to do that kind of work, and then also having the auditing and logging back there. I said we can we can prove all that stuff, right? We right. we heavily audit and log the students when they log in every day. They have to actually activate roles, so it's all role-based access control for everyone, including them. You know, full-timers do the two, um, but the students you know can only activate the roles at certain times for certain lengths of time, and they have to basically you know trigger those workflows um, and. You know that's just good accounting for security in the organization but students specifically um i'm always looking for them to do more right um they and, i don't and want not to in a way of like taking advantage of them making them no, do harder work more, I, want more hours. To, I want it's a it's a learning it's it's you know um we're more both responsibility right i yes i will i will give i will let a student take and run and learn something and then 
contrary to my best interest, you know, I can leave them in that certain role they're doing really, really well. And, you know, be able to, you know, throw in a couple little bits to them, um, but have them be able to do something really well. Well, instead, I'll actually flip it on them, you know, after they've been doing something for like six months or a year or whatever it's been and get them involved with something else. Because educationally, I want them to be as exposed to as many things as possible, because whenever they work in industry, they're probably going to be hyper focused on one or two. I'd rather give them as many experiences as I can across the board, um, you know, that would be beneficial to them as much, you know. Um, to kind of handle. So for my end, it makes our job a little bit harder and easier if I just said, hey, this student's job is to do X and they'll do that for the two or four years that they're here. And then I'm cool for two or four years, right? You know, no, I want them to constantly be doing something. So it makes a little more stress on our side because we're having to consistently teach. But I also think that that helps out the teamwork aspect too, because all of our, we have a side chance that we do in teams a lot. We have a lot of team channels set up and we have some private chats and some other stuff that goes on that makes the operation work. And um, they're constantly talking there about different things that happen, um, you know, second opinions or what, what else can I do with X, Y, or Z. Um, but um, again, challenging them where I give, I don't just say, you know, A, B, C, D, here's what you got to do. You know, um, I don't mean to be mad, I get, mean about it, I guess, but it's not like a lab assignment. I'm just say, here's the starting and ending steps one through 22, do this lab, right? No, I say, here's what we want to have as an end goal. What can you do to make that, you know, that happen using the tool sets that you have? And actually give them the power to kind of come up with things and learn and do stuff on their own too, besides just, you know, wrote, do, you know, process A, B to C to X. Um, and, that makes and, sense. I, and that's kind of the same approach I try as often as I possibly can to, um, to class assignments and labs and, you know, exercises and things that we do. You know, because ultimately there's lots of potential solutions for problems. and 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 sometimes picking out that one is the extent of somebody's job they may not actually do the implementation but they've got to be able to to understand how to make decisions about what's the best choice um and and that's that's very cool that you know like you like like you said you've empowered students to be able to do more while they are working here at siu um and and that's something i've seen and i'm thankful for uh, across campus IT and the other departments that are not central IT, but still work with students. And I said this many times before, because because one of the, I mean, probably the thing we talk most about um, on this podcast is, is in, in, in this class is, you know, former students coming back talking about how valuable their student work experience was and how that helped them get jobs and how much they learned and just you know, this, that's, that's the, that's probably a number one theme is, you know, SIU, you can come here, you can, you can study computing and technology in a couple of different ways or departments and, and programs. Um, but by and large, uh, if you are motivated and you want a role where you can learn some interesting stuff and get paid, you know, the most absolute least amount of money possible within legal parameters, you can get a role doing it at siu and you're going to work with good people who are you know uh have kind of hearts of heart of a teacher who who've been in your position and and want you to succeed and that's probably you know in my opinion one of the biggest selling points of attending siu for you know an undergrad technology education awesome yeah i agree completely i like working with you other people that we've worked over this summer but or in the fall or spring about getting some of the job opportunities lined up and kind of, you know, promoting that kind of stuff more in the academic units, I think is, is useful. Cause I think, again, for me, that was one of the, that was actually 
one of the main reasons why I came to SIU was just talking to people and understanding that, hey, there's opportunities that SIU wants to, you know, give students opportunities to do X, Y, or Z. You know, it might not be in technology, it might be in something else, but there's always a lot of opportunities I think is really beneficial besides yeah. the cool scenery, scenery and other stuff that we have down here, but that's that's a big thing. Um, and, and seeing campus IT take students who have absolutely no experience whatsoever, but have a good attitude and, you know, a drive to learn and, and then turning them into successful, accomplished, you know, technologists um, before they graduate is, you know, I've There's seen that. Say that again. Student works here now full time in IT who started, who came to me. She was a music, uh, she was a English major when I first hired her and yeah. stuff like that. And then she switched majors and showed you up a couple of times and stuff like that. And now she does tech work and works for central IT full time now too. So, and there's um, lots, there's lots of our grads who are working at SIU. It's pretty cool. Um, anything you want me to touch on the projects? I mean, the, the, the student internships, there's three of them right now. Yeah. Tell doing. us about those real quick. Um, so one student is working um, primarily on Splunk. So learning um, a lot of the tools for that sim environment and creating mm -hmm. dashboards. So um, another another skill that'll get you a job just yep. on that alone. Yep. And we um, so they're creating dashboards for like firewalls and stuff like that. Like actually like cool ways to like visualize the firewalls, have other units that aren't like the networking group for other people who understand firewalls and understand the logging. Right. That's part of the good thing about Splunk is it's it has a lot of good data um and just in the background but if you create a dashboard you don't need to tell everyone how to use you know how the sauce is made they just want to see something with that mm -hmm. so building a dashboard is an easy way to do that so getting him to kind of you know start working on that is one thing um another student we have on our microsoft security stack so we have sentinel as well as another sim soar like security orchestration um system that we use for a lot of our cloud products and getting them to kind of operationalize that. Again, we get a lot of alerts and a lot of telemetry from certain areas and being able to use that to help, um, you know, clean up some processes they're working on, um, making some internal processes that we have a, a lot nicer and neater um, and easier on them. So we're not having them duplicate work and stuff. And, um, you know, what used to take us five or six minutes for every account compromise, now is literally like a Microsoft form just about that takes, you know, a minute to enact and stuff. So um, taking other processes in our sort tools a lot nicer. Um, and then the last student is doing um, some work on our endpoint security side. So we're expanding endpoint security. Microsoft across the board, all of our Windows boxes are pretty much set with the Microsoft solutions, but our Linux and our Mac machines don't have endpoint security in that regard. So we're testing and deploying um, and plan to probably in the next year have it deployed across all the campus for every Linux and Mac endpoint as well. We'll also have the same Defender tool sets that we have. And there's a lot of um, cool things that we can do from a security perspective in order to protect the university and you know detect threats and stuff and help users out um, with those types of tools. So he's really, you know, jumping into that, even coming to the point where I'm like, hey, you know, how would you create policies and stuff like that? What would you look like and stuff and letting them kind of lead it? You know, I have my own ideas, I have my own checklist and stuff like that, but kind of, you know, part of giving them the, the opportunity is not just like, hey, you know, here's what I want you to do, do X, Y, and Z. How would you do it, right? What, what are kind of, you know, things would you put in place here? So giving them the opportunity to kind of like at least talk about that um, is, is useful. So those are like the three main projects. I have a GA now who's just starting, but that's pretty uh, cool. Just get caught up here. <laughs> so for, for my own class, uh, the question I'm asking is, is Defender, are you getting an, an actual Microsoft Defender installer for Linux? 
yeah, it's already it's already deployed to um, to um, machines over in computer science. Um, he okay. has one lab that's going with it now too. So um, it it's doesn't officially support Rocky, but it you know Rocky under the hood is the same thing as Sent and stuff. What it does support so. Um, so there's a little bit of limitations, right? Like any other tool, right? Um, if I, we had like a CrowdStrike shop or whatever, we spend a lot of money for that. Um, we probably get a little bit more telemetry, but the Microsoft solution is is pretty good, um, and it supports pretty much everything that we'll probably be using across Linux at SIU. There might be some outliers, but I think right. largely we can we can you know if I can get it on 90% or more of the Linux machines and the Mac machines across campus, you know. That's a ton of devices that we don't have any protections or insight over right now. Um, from a security perspective, like ransomware is always a huge thing. And, you know, contrary to some people's belief, you know, as I love Linux, but it's not foolproof. It can still get it's ransomware bigger. just like another machine, you know. So, the target um, is bigger every day. Yep. So, and yeah, the, the better and cooler that it gets, that more people start to use it, that just makes it a more attractive target, too, right? Exactly. So, um, so yeah, the. Right now, if if a machine got got compromised there, we would be relying on like the network security tools as a whole that might be obfuscated, right? A lot of traffic, eighty percent, ninety percent of the traffic now across the web or more is, you know, HTTPS. Yeah, so you can't, so you don't see that level of detail that you used to be able to see with some of the network monitoring tools. So endpoint security, these XDR solutions um, are are good and are needed to have. And um, again, so instead of relying on that, on that or relying on an endpoint that has a defender to kind of sniff out the, the nearby neighbors in terms of seeing what problems that they have, having it all on the same machine and then having all that telemetry for us going into the same thing instead of, like you said earlier, everyone doing their own thing, you know, getting all this stuff centralized to the, to the security team. You know that that we can go back on and say, hey, you know, academic unit, your machines over here are doing X. Maybe that's a maybe that's normal, right? You know, maybe your machines will get picked up right in the lab. And I think I, well, I've talked to you directly too many times, but I've definitely talked to engineering maybe once or twice with you. You guys run a script or do something, you know, on a lab, and if it happens to get outside the network there or into the network, that starts throwing off alerts on my end. And it's like, okay, what's going on over here and stuff? Oh yeah, that's just this lab. Okay, cool. I know what's going on. We're good. Um, but um, but not having that visibility is really not. And good. usually, if something like that happens, I notice it and stop it pretty quick, and then send a message apologizing. <laughs> yeah, nah, that's all good. I mean, again, that's part of that's part of what we do, and that's part of what makes you know it both fun and challenging from a security perspective. And in the corporate world, you know, there's a lot of restrictions and things that get put in place. Right, your your work your work laptop or desktop does X, Y, and Z, you have access from these particular networks, you know, it's very controlled and isolated. Um, in academia, it's like, no, it's it's pretty much open, right? We need to have researchers be able to do some research that's gonna throw in and trip off stuff. So I'd rather you be, you not try to circumvent and like, yeah. you know, yeah. toss into a Tor browser and try to get off our network and do something funky and stuff like that, then get your machine popped and us never be able to know about it, right? I'd rather you do it on our network, have it trip off our tools and us go back and say, hey, you know, is and this, then use that information. Um, is this doing this thing? And it's like, oh yeah, that was a class. Okay, cool, thanks. You know. Yeah, and then you <laughs> then you've you've got that information to catch future things which aren't from the labs yep. necessarily. Yep, and then yeah, sometimes it's helpful to us too to make sure that that you know inadvertently you guys are helping us test our own tools and our processes too, right? Awesome. <laughs> All right, but, I have five questions to wrap up. These are our fun questions to to close things out. All right, are you, are you ready? Sure. So what's your favorite time? What's your favorite kind of food or restaurant or 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 maybe a cuisine? What do you like to eat? Tell us if you got a favorite restaurant uh, around here. 
I like Thai food a lot. Um, so um, otherwise, um, I my my sugar intake is a lot higher than it should be. So ice cream and candy, things like that. You know, I used to have when I was younger, especially like sugar was like a main food group for me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Thai food. All right, so Thai taste, right? Thai yep. taste, Thai Thai, 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 taste, Thai D, things like that. Yep. Had that the other day. Are there any books, movies, TV shows, podcasts that you like that you are maybe currently binging that you listen to all the time? Anything you want to recommend, uh, either tech, tech or otherwise? Like I said, I, I'm way too scatterbrained slash interested in way too many things. Um, I'll go on a particular day. I'll go and like be looking at Science Daily for like you know how they look at you know different batteries and stuff like that to looking at you know what nasa is doing or spacex is launching to hey this is what you know infrastructure stuff used to do that i'm still kind of interested in the, to the new security things um i get a lot of uh, just being in my current role there's a lot of telemetry that happens to us with like outside agencies too so i'm constantly like researching security bits right or getting you know reading about certain things um that you know compromise good or bad or otherwise and reaching out to units you know across siu or just being aware of and stuff in case we get hit um and then yeah i mean sports family church religion books i mean i it, everything i i would if i binge on something today and i tell you what i'm looking at today um in a week it's going to be completely different um my netflix history is probably very diverse like my music interests are as well <laughs> all right i'll go from heavy metal to classical music in the same hour <laughs> i understand that and thankfully the internet supports that ability yeah. are there any move is there any a specific area of technology that you're interested in learning more about or playing with either personally or here at your job uh yeah i mean the i didn't have formalized like it schooling right so i never took a bunch of uh technology classes so um even the the code and scripts and stuff like that that i write is you know from someone who gets a degree in like you know software engineering stuff that probably looks at my stuff and is like what is that person doing <laughs> um right um so so picking up um I'm I'm probably gonna just go do um, some more advanced like Python type of training and you know get some classwork and stuff in there. Um, data data analysis as a whole, um, I think, is big in security um, to the point where you know data scientists. I think you know working directly in security is a is a big thing. So doing a little bit of that kind of work myself, kind of you know understanding you know big data and how to you know, work with these structured and unstructured data types and kind of, you know, use them in a useful way. Um, I'm always That's interested cool. in AI and stuff like that too, but um, there's there's good and bad. And I have a lot of security reasons that. Yeah. You're it's cool. ChatGPT is a great fun toy to use, but that's for me, that's what it is for now. It's a, it's a toy and I, I tread with caution anything that you put in there and, and trust the results from that. There's too much. Yeah. Too much AI poisoning, I think, right now. That's just even barely being understood yet from a security perspective to really endorse that. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That's something we're going to be learning and talking about for many years. I mean, till forever, forever. It won't stop. Yeah. But I mean, to me, that's it's not AI. To me, that's just search 2.0. Um, it, it's, okay. it's a better web search. That's how I consider it. Maybe I'm being flippant again, but <laughs> maybe a little bit. 
that's that's my area. What would you like to be doing five to ten years from now? Uh, oh, ten years from now, maybe I'll be retired already. Uh, I'll be I'll that's be retired and do whatever. I'm not going to be retired, but uh, yeah, doing. Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to like lose this thirst for technology. If I think if I ever do, then I need to change careers as a whole. Um, Hopefully in the next year or two, I'll probably be like at a CISO role or, you know, something to that regard, you know, a director role. And um, that's probably career wise. I mean, my kids will be a little bit older by then doing a lot of stuff with them in my church, different things like that. So, I mean, I don't know. I try not to think too much. I try to live more in the present at times, but I have an idea what I want to do in the future. But All right. So last question, if you could retire today and do anything you want, no, no, money is no object. What would you do? Uh, if money was no object, um, I'd probably get with some people that want to do a lot of cool spatial exploration stuff. Uh, like one person is probably not too happy in the press at times with certain things, but uh, yeah, be like that person more in that aspect of being, you know, basically trying to try to help out, you know, humanity as a whole and stuff like that. That's really what I want to do is, you know, things I can do to kind of help people as a whole. Um, there's a lot of cool things that, you know, SpaceX and other things to do with space exploration are, I'd probably dive into that and still be involved with the tech because I'd have money to do whatever I wanted with technology, I guess, too. So if nobody was really no object, I'd have a lot of toys to do a lot of cool things with. So, um, but ultimately all the cool things is, you know, ultimately serving purposes, not just to let me have some fun, but, you know, to hopefully, make things better in the world one way or the other. Fantastic answer. Richard, thank you very much for your time. This has been thank a you. lot of fun. Learned a lot of things about you. Um, and so did this, so so did these students. I'm gonna get this uploaded to them. And uh I appreciate everything. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it.